Hello and welcome to the last episode of Connected Sounds. This is the last episode from season one. It's honestly been amazing to be a part of Connected Sounds. Thank you for sticking around and thank you for supporting the series. I've never done anything like this before, so thank you very, very much. The last episode is featuring Tom Aspel, where we speak about his Roma heritage, his journey throughout the music industry, writing for the Sugar Babes, and being queer. So, enjoy the show! I might have to put myself on mute, like, for half of this, because those sneezes... No, oh my god, don't worry, it's fine, honestly. The stuff that's coming out, oh my goodness, it's on a whole new level. It's hell today. Yeah, it really is. How have you been? I've been all right, actually. I just, my appointment, I had Botox this morning. No! (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, you can't really see anything, but... On the forehead only? Yeah, just the forehead, which was hell, because obviously, like, I was sneezing a lot, and my eyes are really puffy, and... Yeah, but I feel um, refreshed. Yeah, is it your first time? <laughs> yeah, so I was quite nervous about it. I just thought, you know, coming into like, you know, hot boy summer, let's... <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, let's go for it. Um, I just It's just because I'm doing some shows um, next... Oh, this month. Oh my God, it's this month. So I'm... And I just wanted... I just... Just a little refresher. Do you like see slash feel the difference? Not instantly, no, but I've just got lots of little like red dots all over me at the moment where it went in. I think it takes about a week to start uh, sort of really kicking in. So shall we jump right in and go to the beginning? So I suppose the beginning of uh, where you were born, how you first got into music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in Wolverhampton in the West Midlands um, and I um, was... I guess, brought up in a house uh, of music, basically. Just my mum was playing music all the time. And I remember from a very early age, would sort of make up songs and melodies, but didn't really ever really put pen to paper or anything. And then I guess I just sort of went through school doing musicals and playing instruments and things like that. But I was also very academic. So I ended up going to uh, university and studying architecture um, and sort of, even though I was making really crappy demos and wanting to sing, I just sort of put it to the back of my head. And I then did a master's in set design. And it was just like, I remember just having this sort of revelation. So I sort of started making a few demos. Um, and I was living in London at the time, working in a pub while I was doing my master's. And a person, Alex Bean, she was an a and at a record label. And she used to come to the pub all the time to DJ. And there were a lot of other music industry people at the pub. It was in Shoreditch. And I just played her a demo one night while I was drunk. Um, and I had the confidence to do it. And she, she loved it and sort of kept in touch. And then off the back of that, I met, um, that's how I met Emanike, because she was working with him at the time, because he was writing for a girl group that she was working with and then my first ever studio session was with um the sugar babes they were the reformed sugar babes in 2012 and um didn't study music or I was never in a band um no one at school ever sort of told me that I could be in the music industry they just sort of pushed me into like academia and, and like studying but um yeah so that that's pretty much it it's, it's quite a sort of I think a lot of people who I've 
worked with in the music industry is very similar backgrounds. Like they were just sort of, you know, around music from a very young age. My mom would play like Shaka Khan and Michael Jackson and Madonna. And I, it was all just like pop music was just massive. And then I think by the time I was sort of 10, 12, I started to love like the Spice Girls and my favourite was Janet Jackson and George Michael when I was a little boy. You look a bit like George Michael. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, he's my idol pretty much, although he doesn't have blonde hair. He's kind of, for me, like pretty much the blueprint of a male vocalist because most of my favourite artists are like female. Janet, I love Madonna, obviously, um, Mariah Carey. And I just think it's very weird, but a lot of gay men don't seem to listen to male artists, really. Why do you think? It's funny, isn't it? I think it's because we sort of tend to idolise women. And I don't know, if you think of like Donna Summer and Kylie Minogue, it's all very like heartbreaking, melancholy. And there, I guess there just hasn't been like that many male artists who've been that mainstream Um Apart from like, you know, Elton John and Freddie Mercury and people like that. But George Michael for me was like the first big pop artist that I loved. That was a guy, him and I guess Michael Jackson, but don't really talk about Michael Jackson now. <laughs> Anytime anyone brings up, I'm like, okay. Let's I, did, I did absolutely. I was obsessed with Michael Jackson. And I think a lot of kids my age were, because, it, you know, it's king of pop, wasn't he? Pretty much. Um, and I, I actually don't listen to him now. I'll make a, a concerted effort. Um, sometimes one or two songs will come on. I do feel for him as well at the same time, but I just think there's so much nastiness surrounding all of that that it's just a little bit like, oh, God. It's a very conflicting topic. Yeah, there's so many layers to do with everything. And, you know, he, in in some ways he's a victim, in some ways... He's the perpetrator and it's just sort of... Nothing's black and white, is it? It's all very grey. But at the same time, I have a radio show and I don't I don't play him. Yeah, I, I do the same, I'm not going to lie. Um, so when did you first think that you could maybe go into music? So was it during the architecture or the set design? The architecture, I, I had a sort of small circle of friends. And I think I remember playing some demos to these girls and they were like, these are really good. And it kind of rekindled my songwriting. I was like, wow, these people like it and they've only known me five minutes. Am I right to think that, so you grew up in Wolverhampton and then moved to London when you were 14? So those are, those are in the lyrics. So I left Wolverhampton when I was, I was 14. I moved to Telford, um, which was where I went to school. And then I, I went to Liverpool when I was 18. And then I was, I was in London. Oh, yeah, I was in London when I was 21. I, it's funny because in that song, it's like, I uh, was in Wolverhampton, left when I was 14, then I moved to London. It's like I just, those seven years are kind of, have just disappeared and, and I, they don't exist really to me. And it's quite weird because those seven years were like when I didn't really write music or I was studying architecture, I was doing this, doing that. Also, I guess I probably hadn't really come out of the closet. I was sort of, and it's in, in my head, I think I've compartmentalised it. Um, it wasn't until I made that jump to London that I sort of really started to find myself. I think it's a, there's always a bit of a delay for gay people, really, to sort of get to that point. 
But they're quite they're quite formative years, aren't they? Fourteen to twenty one. They are, yeah. And I didn't have like I I don't know. It's, I I feel I I think this is quite common for for gay men at least is that there's like a a delay. So they have like a really wild twenties because they kind of weren't allowed to or weren't comfortable enough to sort of or they didn't find their people or they were sort of living in a small town, you know. So by the time they do get to somewhere where they feel like they can be themselves, then it's like an explosion. And yeah, I remember like when I was between 21 and 25, like all different, I dressed, like, yeah, I was just mad. (laughs) And was that from like 21? Was that when you came out? Well, do you know, I never really came out. I never sort of like stood up and was like, guess what, guys? Um, But I think it was when I did go to university, I sort of like wasn't, I wasn't in the closet really I was sort of pretty open about going to gay bars and meeting guys and stuff but I guess if you're out to different people I don't know it's weird um but I think by the time I was 21 like I was just fully like in inhabiting myself I guess what was it like when you came to London well I had a very close friend who was who was um living there already um so she kind of took me under her wing um we moved to Dalston and Dalston was I'm yeah I'm gonna say it was rough it was really rough like I didn't feel safe (laughs) it was I mean where I'm from in Wolverhampton is rough so I'm not like I I'm not really I don't mind these kind of things but we were like I feel like we were like the pioneers of like gentrifiers to be honest because that we were like all students we were living in this old lady's house She'd just passed away and her neighbour, Rita, had keys to our house and would just let herself in and be like, I bought you some bread, I've got you some milk, like real proper cockney. Um, and all the street were like in each other's business. It was like EastEnders. It was mad. And then like obviously Dalston was like a really, like I said, like quite a rough high street. But then it started to, bars started to open and lots of clubs and stuff. And then it started to be a place that people used to come to. Did you go there with an agenda? By the time I was in London and the reality hit me of like having to pay rent and even though it was much cheaper then, it was still expensive. Um, I was having to sort of work four or five days in a bar and in, you know, doing really unsociable hours to just pay the rent. And it actually my ambition to sort of do music on top of the course I was studying and my dissertation and everything, it kind of fell by the wayside again so even though I'd had the intention of doing that I'd spent you know 14 to 21 sort of like not doing it even by the time I got to London I was still putting it off that to the point where it was I was yeah in like 24 25 by the time I really started getting going uh, like I did quite a few years just as a writer just like as a, a songwriter for lots of other people is that when you worked with the Sugar Babes? Yeah, so that was, they were like my first studio session. How was that your first studio session? Sugar Babes is your first, that's crazy. I know, you tell me. I honestly, to this day, like probably one of the weirdest situations because I was a massive fan of the Sugar Babes. It was like a bit, a bit of a dream come true and I didn't know how studio sessions really worked. So I rocked up to the studio with like a big bag of sweets because I was like, I'll just bring some presents. Because I was like, I don't know, like I'll just bring them something just, you know, to, like, sweeten the deal. Um, I spent a week with them, um, literally an intense week, and it was was so hard because we weren't allowed... I wasn't allowed to tell anyone because it was all very 
secretive at the time and we had to go and do lunch individually so you had to go to lunch individually for the sake of nobody seeing that you guys were all writing together yeah even though it was really obvious so like you'd get like me and Keisha would go and go to the Vietnamese and then I would go with with Siobhan and Mutia together and then and like you'd know that like photographers would they'd just see the fact that I was with them like it's so silly what was your mindset during that week then Oh God, I thought I was like, I, I genuinely thought I'd made it at that point. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was like, yeah, you know, here I am with the sugar babes. But the reality of the music industry is that you you can do a session with these people and you can enjoy it and love every minute. But then there are things out of your control. For instance, they, I don't know if they parted with their label or they were dropped. I'm not sure. But that album just didn't get used. So all that hard work and all the buzz surrounding them, um, it just, it kind of amounted to just a bit of disappointment, I guess. Um, and that was the first of many, like, rock, like roller coaster sort of, oh my God, this is it. And then, no. So then after that week, where did the trajectory go music-wise? Because I know that you did a lot of work with other musicians, so writing, before you obviously wrote your album I mean there's a long-winded story there's like I got in I sort of was dealing with a label at one point and we made a music video and that all that kind of fell through and they were linked in with the sugar babes as well so there was a lot of disappointment there why did it fall through oh do you know what I've never really told this story I did um I wrote this song with this guy Marcus um and it was incredible song even the, the sugar babes wanted it for their album actually and it was sort of like a really sort of dark dance electronic song it's not really my cup of tea normally but I really like it and this label this dance label they um they loved it and next thing I knew they'd like they were like we're gonna release it and um we're gonna shoot a video and I was I was like what and this was all within a a month or two of the sugar babe sessions so I was you can imagine like I was flying high and the video shoot was amazing like they'd hired this like big Mercedes and there were like cameras rigged to it and I was driving around and then they showed me an edit of the video and there was like a female love interest that I had not known about Um, and there's just this really skinny girl in her pants just like walking around a flat looking forlorn and then I and then it would cut to me driving and I was like so you what 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 does this mean and 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 they were like oh yeah so she's like the love interest and then like she's holding the dice that are in the car and I was like yeah but what Uh, did I approve this and they were like well we just went ahead with the what the directors wanted to do so we had to fight for them to like remove either me or her out of it so it would be your love, your love interest. Yeah, like that's how it how it seemed. But in the end, like the whole, they just went quiet on me. And I don't really know what happened there. Like it just was never released. The video was shelved, even though they spent all the money on the video. And like it, that was it. And it was that was odd. That and that was that was like my first run in with a label and releasing my own music. That was the first time. So you can imagine, I was a little bit like, whoa, I don't like this. I'm sort of I need to have a manager or something so I did get a manager fairly soon after that wrote a song called Indiana and I'd sort of become friends with Uzo uh, M-N-E-K and 
he had heard that on SoundCloud and, and said to me, I would love to help you finish or produce that. And then I signed my publishing deal in August and then it kind of, everything sort of changed. So I felt like I was the artist at that point. And then when I signed my publishing deal, it became about songwriting. And I think because it's maybe because there's more money in songwriting or it's more feasible or it's easier to break into, I'm not sure, but it's like bit by bit, my publisher, my manager, sort of my focus became writing for other people but as an artist I feel like I was like literally side like put to the side and then I wrote for other people that must have been quite strange though yeah going into it think like with the idea of being an artist and then somebody else making that decision that actually you're you're a songwriter now yeah I think it's honestly all wrapped up in my self-confidence as well and wrapped up in your head telling you one thing. You know, when you sign a publishing deal, you get a lot of money and then they tell you to go into different studios to write with different people. And you do that five days a week. You write five songs a week. That's like, what, 20 songs a month? Like, it's draining. So you're doing that all the time in the 0.001% chance that you're going to get a hit. You know what I mean? You're doing that with that in your mind. And... So that leaves very little time for your own artistic creativity or space, even just space in your head. Like it was very hard to then switch off from the songwriting and and be the artist. Um, And I was really, I was complicit. I wasn't being told what to do. I was agreeing with it because I thought, you know, actually I could do this as like a career, you know, who, and maybe it's to do with confidence, but by then I was like 25, 26, you know, gay as well like I had had that weird kind of run in with that label before and even though the song Indiana did really well I just thought it's just very hard to do the artist thing um here's an option that actually allows me to write songs every day do what I love but then less of the stress of actually being up front and being you know out there what did you think about that style of songwriting? So it's kind of like the studio, you go in there, you do the five tracks and you hope that one of them will will be the one. Initially, when I had like money in the bank, fine, because I was given an advance. So it works like a book deal or something. They will give you money up front and then you kind of have to live off that, almost like a salary. And whatever songs you write, they own 50% of it. And then the money it makes pays off your advance, if that makes sense. For the first few years, I was living comfortably. But then as then as like I started to struggle financially and I, the hits just weren't happening. And I also was it was a bit soul destroying. You know, there were people who were better connected people with man my manager lived in Chicago, which is stupid now looking back. But like I just didn't. I didn't care enough to really, I didn't want it enough. And like, you have to really want it. You need to be like thirsty for it. You have to just go for it and throw everything into it. And obviously like I had one foot out of it because I knew in my head that I really wanted to be an artist as well. Um, so I actually became almost bitter about it in the end that by, by like the third year, I just, I was late for sessions. I didn't give a shit. I just, and, and it was reflected in the writing and I think it also like my publishers around about the second year, my publishers folded. They just shut down their publishing. 
So we, we were taken over by another company. And then the new people who took over, they were really excited for about a year and like sending me to Los Angeles and sending me to Sweden. And I was having a really good time. And then a new guy took over and we just like just didn't get on at all. He just didn't understand me. I didn't understand him. And that was my last year signed by them. And that would have been 2018. So between like 2018 and the first single from Black Country Disco, I obviously penniless. I'd spent all my advance. You know, I'd actually made it last for four years. How does that work financially if, like you said, if the hits aren't coming in? It depends how you define a hit because I still would make money from royalties. Um, You get that paid every three months. Um, And... It wasn't enough to live off, but like it would keep me ticking over. When I say hit, I mean like top 40 in the charts. There's songs that I've written that have got millions and millions of streams and views on YouTube and like that have done relatively well. And I've, you know, I've written for lots of like amazing artists, but it just doesn't, as a songwriter, you just don't get a lot, basically. You have to have something in the charts on the radio all the time for it to be worth your while I think and so some people are chasing after that to the detriment of their creativity really I think they compromise a lot um because they're chasing trends and sounds and wanting to sound like this and you'd go in the studio and they'd be they'd play you like a song by whoever was in the charts at that point they'd be like we want something like this like Camila Cabello or something I'd be like fuck that like I'd rather just do something that I want to do and you were still in London weren't you still living in London so all of my advance really was just paying my rent and not blaming my ex-boyfriend, but I was in a relationship for the last five years that I was in London and I was just comfortable and I wasn't being pushed or I didn't see a way out. If I left London, I'd have to leave him. And it was just like, there's so many different things that were keeping me there, but I did notice it because he he was doing really well with his job and he wound up becoming part owner of this flat that we lived in and like uh, he was two or three years younger than me as well so you've got to like take into consideration I it was very hard for me to even grasp that was happening and I think I might have just like buried it like that he was sort of just like getting on with his life and his career and it was fine whereas I was just sort of like floundering and like oh I'm gonna I'm going to be a receptionist for two years. And that's what I did. And I was working actually in Soho House. Obviously, as you know, it's full of people in the music industry. So they, people would like come to the reception and be like, what are you doing on the desk? And I'd be like, this is my job. How am I supposed to pay the rent? You know what I mean? And being faced with that every day was was difficult because it was just reminding me that I was sort of either failing or I was, wasn't doing something right. I think also that's a difficult dynamic when you are in a relationship and everything is kind of compared when you're when you're so like a friendship or a relationship or whatever it may be. I think it plays a toll on the person yeah. that is comparing themselves and that isn't in the place that they want to be that they see that their partner is in. Yeah, he he also was in the music industry. That's how we met. Wow, that's intense. Oh my god, yeah. And so he was. Um, I mean. This is going to be edited, isn't it? So you don't have to cut any of this in.
I don't think it's worth the burden. The following of footage had to be deleted for some legal purposes. To be so, able to live there. in the interest um, of the artist, it's, and I do. The I love London. I love so many people that live there. And having their own I spent privacy. Twelve years of my life there, this pretty much. So, so what I'm gonna do home. is I'm gonna uh, drop you in. Dalston, but okay, it's almost like I've had to unlearn I'm gonna drop my you dependency in on it. Right. And the more I stay here and put roots down back where I'm from, now the more I see that. There are people here who are just like me, and there are people here who I can um, lean on to help create things. There are loads of really talented artists and videographers and photographers and dancers, and there is just a wealth of people in the West Midlands, at least. And just because it's sort of like not in London, it doesn't make it any less important. And I do genuinely think things are starting to change slightly. Not a lot, but they are. I've just noticed, um, I think that for me, like the almost like it's the, the drag scene is almost like a good barometer of where things are at. And obviously London's always like the premier place, but there's so much exciting stuff going on in Birmingham in terms of drag and in, in Manchester as well. What is the queer scene like? In Birmingham, it's amazing. It's it's just so fun. And it's really, like, edgy. Like, I think it, it feels... For me, for someone that lived in East London for so long, it just feels like... It feels like a natural progression. Whereas I think... I don't know. It's, uh, the, the caters for a lot of different people. And it's big as well. You know, it's, like, one of the biggest cities in the UK. So it's as you'd expect. There is kind of like, I do sense there's a lot of people in the Birmingham queer scene that want to move to London and they're a bit younger than me. And I like, I fully support that because I think you do, you do gain a lot from going to London. You do gain a lot from getting out of your comfort zone and meeting new people. And as well, like in London, you meet people from all over the world, all walks of life. Um, And you do in Birmingham, but on a much smaller scale, so kind of going back to your album, yes. am I correct in saying that you have Roma heritage? Yeah, like my mum's family. With everything going on, like it's interesting to speak about the police crime and court sentencing bill. I mean, it's that it's very complicated and, and difficult because I, I also, I'm not obviously part of that community. I wasn't brought up in that community. So I was obviously, my family are all settled, but it's like my mum's dad and backwards from there um so I'm almost like socialized almost to think about the traveling community in the way that the rest of the the society does because I was brought up on an estate where when travelers would come and they would come to like uh the green everybody would be horrible about them and I was just very used to that and um didn't really think anything of it so when you're kind of socialized to think that way it takes a lot to like unlearn that um and it is just more than anything you 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 just the, they're just criminalized for existing basically um and that goes it goes down to the root of society and it's it's interesting for me having that in my heritage but then also not having it on my dad's side and then knowing that it's part of you is just a very weird kind of conflict. I definitely feel a massive amount of pride and resilience. And um, I think I, I'm, I'm fascinated and 
uh, I think it's a wonderful culture and there's a lot of beauty in it. But there's just, there's such a high suicide rate amongst males. There's a lot of homophobia amongst uh, the community as well. And I don't know, there's, there's just so many problems and issues. And I think a, a, a large part of it is because they're quite closed off and don't really want any exterior help or help from outside. Because they've seen what it's done. Exactly. So, you know, and that kind of, there's like this cycle where, you know, they will take their kids out of school and they'll move to a new place. And so the education remains less of a priority. And then it's just kind of just keeps going round. And there's a mistrust of the settled community. And But I do think there's been more people talking about it because I remember I think back in 2005 I think there was an election and I think Michael Howard was the conservative um, leader and his main sort of policy was like I'm going to be hard on travellers <laughs> and it was just that that to me was just like when it changed really because I just thought you can't have people as a sort of electioneering device to get more votes because you know that you're just going to blame everything on them Obviously, whenever there's crime or anything, they're always always mentioned that they're travellers or they're Roma. And I just think if they did that for every sort of ethnicity, there would be more of an uproar about it. But I think it's almost like acceptable to just say that and to not really, um, to not give a shit really. But then at the same time, it's part of this cycle where I think because there's such a mistrust of like the settled community that there are very few that go on to be able to defend their position in a public sphere if that makes sense because they don't they don't ever branch out from that sort of community so there's no one really like sticking up for them um there are on twitter and stuff but i think it's the same all across europe and um just the other day there i think it happened in czech Czech Republic there was someone who um a police officer just it knelt on him and identified him and I think he ended up dying in custody so there's a whole big like uproar about that in Eastern Europe at the moment um actually did um just before the pandemic I met up with this guy from the um they're called the Roma Support Group and they are like a charity that do um, sort of um, for like the youth. A lot of Roma came over from Romania and, and other Eastern European EU countries um, before we left the EU. And a lot of them were sort of homed, homed is the word, in places in like Derby and Nottingham and places like that. And basically this charity would do like outreach groups um where you would just basically just hang out with these kids or like teach them or just stuff like that basically I'd teach them history as well about their history and stuff and I was really excited about maybe doing that um and we agreed that I was going to help them with their graphic design and stuff because obviously I'd done all of that with my album um but then obviously the pandemic happened so that was that didn't didn't come to pass but obviously I'd love to be able to do something in the future just being able to feel connected in the sense that I'm helping in some way because it's I think 
it's not really spoken about and when it is it's always there's always some, something negative about it no it's not ever celebrated it's never people only ever really mention it in it's either to do with being treated like crap or some law is going to pass where you can't move onto you can't trespass or like it's just yeah pretty hard but like I said it's always been weird for me having like that out outside perspective and then having like you know my mom's family and hearing from them and what they're like do you feel connected to your Roma heritage well no not not really because I don't feel like I wasn't I'm not part of the community I'm not I wasn't brought up in it but I in a in a sort of maybe a, a bigger sense of I I'm always interested in their status and their situation always ready to um, stick up for their rights and make sure you know it doesn't you know casual sort of slurs don't go unchecked but I also recognize you know my privilege I'm not part of that um, and I haven't experienced any of that sort of discrimination although my mum's family has like for instance her sister was fired from her job pretty much just for being a traveller yeah and not being able to read or write she had no way of defending herself that I'm pretty sure that kind of thing happens all the time you know people if they book a wedding and the the people who own it get wind of it being like a traveller wedding or a gypsy wedding they will cancel it or tell them to move on to another place and that happens a lot where, where do you think the the mistrust has come from obviously a bit of a stupid question but well like I said you know growing up if I if, if ever like a large group of travelers would come onto our um patch of grass I think it it just it's just like us and them isn't it it's sort of like human nature almost you know who are these strangers and why are they here and what do they want and and then they just like move on to the next I don't I think it might be to do with that um and also a lot of people just it's just through lack of understanding really I think people just don't won't aren't willing to sit and understand why people might be a certain way and it's one of those sort of vicious cycles isn't it where one thing keeps propagating the other thing it's it's very hard and I you know I always I always think you know whenever travelers leave somewhere and they leave rubbish and things like that I always think you only ever hear of that but there are there are people travelers leaving sites all the time completely pristine and perfect but you don't hear that reported you know that and maybe that you only ever hear about the bad ones and i'm just like you only have to look at the park whenever it's a sunny day like there's no difference people litter across all communities there's a book called uh, gypsy boy that i read um and it is such a like harrowing, harrowing book. Um, and I read it when I was on holiday in Brazil and like I just I couldn't put it down. And the guy who wrote it, I was um, he's a Romani gypsy um, and he's also gay. And he we were talking about, you know, how his community doesn't that it's there is a lot of homophobia, basically, and how he pretty much probably feels isolated from both sides and and um, how difficult that's been and it's really fascinating and and sad at the same time but yeah he's wonderful Mikey Walsh I was talking to him actually around about the time of the trespassing bill and he like the effect it was having on him 
was huge. It was awful because, you know, here's someone who was brought up in the community and, you know, travelled around and to see his lifestyle basically being um, legislated against. And the way he put it was like they were just basically trying to eliminate their th- that race of people mm-hmm. and assimilate as well isn't it yeah that's why i'm, I'm I, f- I feel wary talking about it because it's like i i haven't experienced that and i don't feel that and i can't and un- i can never understand what that would feel like but at the same time like i still feel something for them and feel very wrapped up in it at the same time so it's quite a a weird one Am I wrong in saying that it influenced your packaging design somewhat for your album? Yeah, I do. There's, I do have this, there's like a symbol, like a wheel, basically, that um, is like on the flag of the Roma people, which I do want to like interlace my work with elements of that because, like I said, you know, I'm proud, but also I think if it ever becomes a point of conversation, then I'm happy to like talk about it and to bring up these issues and like I'm learning about it all the time I still don't know half as much as what I should do but there are people out there who are you know doing the work and I think if you can help in some way then then why not yeah especially when it seems like it's declining at the moment like the the help towards the community with regards to the government being used as an election device is is the worst thing in the world, I think. Just as a scapegoat for everyone else's problems, that's pretty much the theme The theme of the day. I don't think there's going to be a change in this generation. It's just going to take a really long time incrementally. But if they're legislating to stop trespassing, then more or less they're all going to be settled soon. And then, yeah, that's it, really. It's a difference, isn't there, really? There's like there's the way of life, which is completely different to the settled British people. And then there's also like the ethnicity as well, which is different as well. So if the, they're two things that are trying to almost be assimilated, then eventually the whole thing is going to die out, which is um, in this country, at least, which is sad. You were listening to Connected Sounds with myself, Maya Kelly, and our fabulous guest, Tom Aspel. Well, that's the last episode of Connected Sounds Season 1. I hope you've enjoyed the series. It's been a joy to make. Yes, this is the last episode. However, next week's episode will be a Best Bits compilation with a few little sprinkles of deleted scenes. I suppose they're not called deleted scenes, but deleted audio. So do check that out. And until next time, I tell you, shine like a butterfly. Shine.